like you to turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. You know, when you ask people, do you want to go to heaven? The general consensus is, yeah, but not right now. Yeah, I want to go to heaven, but not yet. Heaven is a great idea down the road. Someday I'd like to go there, but at the moment I'm really not that interested. In fact, if we would be honest, most of us think about heaven as a rather boring place. I'll admit to you that I like far side cartoons. There was a far side cartoon with a guy with wings and a white robe and a halo sitting alone on a cloud thinking, I wish I'd brought a magazine. Well, the passage we're going to look at this morning counters that disoriented or disinterested view of heaven by showing that rather than settling in and feeling comfortable here on earth, we ought to feel at, out of place here. And rather than viewing heaven as a nice extra throw-in after we've enjoyed the good life here below, believers should long for heaven right now. The passage we're going to look at this morning is Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 to 16. And I want you to notice how it begins. Verse 13, All these died in faith. All who? Well, he's talking about Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob. He's not, he's not talking about all the people he's talked about so far in this chapter because if we go back to Enoch in verse 5, he didn't die. And in verse 15, he talks about that country from which they went out. Well, Abel in verse 4 didn't go out of any country. Noah in verse 7 didn't go out of any country. And so in verse 13, when he talks about all these, he's talking about Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob. It says all these died in faith. And when someone dies, we often say, well, I'm so thankful that he died peacefully. I'm so thankful that he didn't have to suffer. But you know, that's not the most important issue at death. In fact, later in this chapter, in verse 37, we're going to read about people of faith who were stoned to death. People of faith who were sawn in two. Now that's painful. That's awful. That's inhumane. No one wants to die that way. But you see, the most important issue is not, will you die naturally? The most important issue is, will you die in faith? And how do you die in faith? Well, you first have to come in faith and walk by faith and live by faith in order to die in faith. And then notice what else he says here in verse 13. All these died in faith without receiving the promises. You say, well, that sounds like one of those stories with a sad ending. They live their whole lives trusting God to deliver on His promises and He never did in their lifetime. 
They went to their graves still waiting, still trusting, still believing, still hoping, but never receiving. Is that a sad story? No. That's what the life of faith is all about. Verse 1 says it's about things hoped for. It's about things not seen. Faith is believing God no matter what the circumstances say. And it's continuing to believe right to the grave because faith can see beyond the grave. See, for the life of faith, death is not a disappointment. It's not a defeat. It's not a setback. In fact, when I come to Christ in faith, initially one of the things I do is I surrender my life to Him. I die to self in order to come to Christ. So what threat is death to me? Jim, El Jim Elliott, as a college student, wrote this down. He is no fool who gives what he cannot gain, cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And then seven years later, he and four other missionaries were martyred by the very Indians they were trying to take the gospel to in Ecuador. Was that a defeat? Was that a setback? No. That was a victory. You see, that is the response of faith. I'll give this life that I can't keep anyway to gain what I can never lose. I'll give this life, whether it means a brief life or a long life, I'll surrender it to the Lord. Jim Elliott lived a brief life. These people lived long lives. But even though they lived long lives, they never got the promises. Abraham died at the age of 175. God had promised him that he would be a great nation and have the land. When Abraham died, he had one son who was 75 years old. He had two grandsons who were 15. And he owned one piece of property, a tomb. Isaac died at the age of 180. He owned a few wells. He owned a little bit of grazing land for his flocks, but he lived his whole life in a tent. Jacob died at the age of 147. He died with 70 descendants, including his 12 sons, who would be the patriarchs of the 12 tribes, but he lived his last days and he died in the land of Egypt. In fact, it was almost 500 years after Jacob died that Israel first began to possess Canaan. All these died in faith without receiving the promises. You say, well, how did they do that? Or better yet, how can I do that? How can I know that I will die in faith? Well, you know, I see this passage as a sojourner's journal. It gives us a checklist of things that we should emulate in this journey of faith. And I've listed six of them that are in your bulletin. And I want to walk through those with you this morning. The first thing on the checklist is their perspective in verse 13. Notice, all these died in faith without receiving the promises. What was their perspective? but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance. They didn't get the promises, but they saw them. How did they see them? By faith. 
Verse 1 says, faith is the substance of things hoped for. Faith is the conviction of things not seen. Jesus said in John 8, 56, your father Abraham re rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. How did he see it? By faith. You know, we're like Moses in Deuteronomy 3 where God told him, you can't go in the land, but I'm going to let you go up on the mountaintop and I'm going to let you see the promised land even though you can't enter. That's very much what God lets us do. He lets us go up on the mountaintop and see the promises even though we're not going to experience those promises in this lifetime. Faith sees the promises of God. Have you ever done that by faith? Have you ever by faith just sat and, and watched Jesus come back? Ever gone out on a cloudy day because he's coming back in the clouds, so I think it'll be a cloudy day. Look up at the sky and just imagine what it'll be like when Jesus comes back. Have you ever seen yourself in heaven by faith? I've already sat on a cloud and played a harp by faith. In fact, did you know that you can improve your spiritual eyesight? Let me show you a passage real quickly. Look at 2 Peter chapter 1. Second Peter chapter 1. He says, beginning in verse 5, add to your faith moral excellence, and to your moral excellence knowledge, and to your knowledge self-control, and to your self-control perseverance, and to your perseverance godliness, to your godliness brotherly kindness, and to your brotherly kindness, love. But then I want you to notice what he says in verse 9. For he who lacks these qualities is blind and short-sighted. When you're short-sighted, it means you can't see afar off. So how do you improve your spiritual vision? How do you improve your spiritual eyesight so that you can see those promises afar off? Well, he says you build into your faith moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly love, and agape love. And then coming back to Hebrews chapter 11, he says they saw the promises and then a few manuscripts have this phrase, they were persuaded of them. I think it's in the King James Version. That, that's the idea. They were convinced that they were true. They were convinced that they were real. They were banking their life on the promises of God. You see, the longer you look at the promises of God, the more convinced you become that they're true. You see, these people weren't uncertain. They weren't wishing for the best. They weren't saying, well, you know, I hope it all works out. They were convinced of the promises of God. That's what faith is. That's why verse 1 says, faith makes future things a reality in the present and faith bets its life on the promises of God. And so they saw them, they were persuaded of them, and then notice what the next phrase says. It says, and having welcomed them. They welcomed God's promises. They greeted them with open arms. They hugged them. They delighted in them. They loved them. They found them to be precious. 
Have you gotten a hold of the promises of God by faith? Are you welcoming them? Are they precious to you? Do you want Jesus to come back right now? You say, no, I'd rather wait till after the Super Bowl. Well, then you're not welcoming the promises of God. And then I want you to notice that phrase, from a distance. What does that mean? Well, I think it amplifies the opening words of this verse that says, they died in faith without receiving the promises. Now that's interesting because if you go back to Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 15, it says, having patiently waited, Abraham obtained the promise. And here in chapter 11 and verse 17, it says, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises. But then in verse 13 it says, they didn't receive the promises. Now how do you receive the promises and yet not receive the promises? Well, Abraham and Sarah received the promise of a son, but they didn't receive the promise of an innumerable nation. They tasted the promises of God, but they didn't get the total fulfillment of those promises. And so the promises for them had to be seen and welcomed from a distance. And the same is true of believers today. The Bible tells me that I have eternal life right now. But in its total fulfillment, that's something that I'm going to receive in a future day. And so if the Lord doesn't come back and you die, it will be said of you that He died in faith. Now the world laughs at that epitaph. He died in faith. The world would say that's pie in the sky. The world would, would agree with Reverend Ike, and if you ever get any of Reverend Ike's stuff, throw it away. Reverend Ike said, I want cash in the stash here and now, not pie in the sky when I die. I like what C.S. Lewis said in his book, The Problem of Pain. He said, Scripture habitually puts the joys of heaven onto the scale against the sufferings of earth. And no solution of the problem of pain which does not do so can be called a Christian one. We are very shy nowadays of even mentioning heaven. We are afraid of the jeer about pie in the sky. But either there is pie in the sky or there is not. And if there is not, then Christianity is false, for this doctrine is woven into its whole fabric. Are you a sojourner? If so, then number one on the checklist is perspective. Seeing and welcoming the promises of God from a distance. And then second on the checklist is their profession at the end of verse 13. It says, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Because by faith they saw and were persuaded and embraced the future promises of God, it had an effect on their present day life. It says they said something. And what did they say? They said they were strangers and exiles or pilgrims. Now where does a stranger live? 
Where does a pilgrim live? Well, he lives somewhere else. His home is not here. And they confessed that. Abraham said to Heth in Genesis 23, 4, I am a stranger and a sojourner with you. Jacob said to Pharaoh in Genesis 47, 9, the days of the years of my pilgrimage are 130. And David, even though he was in the land in Psalm 39, 12, said, for I am a stranger with thee, a sojourner like all my fathers. Do you tell people that you're just passing through? Do your friends know, do your neighbors know that you're just a sojourner in this world? See, that's the profession of a sojourner. And then third on the checklist is their pattern. Notice verse 14. For those who say such things, make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. They make it clear. How do you make it clear? You make it clear by your lifestyle. They not only say it, they show it. There was no question to those around them of what they were seeking in life. What they were seeking was not in this world. What they were seeking was a country of their own. What they were seeking was what Abraham was seeking in verse 10. The city which has foundations whose builder and maker is God. And it was obvious to everyone around them that that was their goal. Let me ask you, do people know? Is it obvious to people around you? Do you make it clear that you're seeking another country? You see, seeking and welcoming God's promises disrupted the rest of Abraham's life. Abraham no longer blended in. He was different. When he, when he passed by a city, people stood and stared at him. When they pitched their tents outside of some city in Canaan, the people would say, who are they? Where are they from? Why are they here? When I went to Africa several years ago, I had the privilege of stopping in Rome for a couple days, and I wandered around Rome by myself. I took taxis, I ate in restaurants, uh, I, I did my best to talk to people, but it was very obvious that I didn't belong there. You know, that's the same way we as Christians should feel about living in this world. We shouldn't fit in. The world pursues different goals. The world laughs at different jokes. The world lives for this life only. The world acts as if there is no God. And it should be obvious that those of us who are Christians don't fit in here. We should be making it clear to those around us that this is not our goal, that we are seeking another country. In fact, when you think about it, I have more up there than I do here. It was from there that I was born again. John 3.3 3 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, except a man is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I have my citizenship there. Philippians 3.20 says, For our citizenship is in heaven. 
All my blessings come from there. Ephesians 1.3 says, He has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. Ephesians 2.6 says, I'm seated there with Christ. Matthew 6.20 says, I have treasures laid up there. No wonder Paul was homesick in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 23. He said, but I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. No wonder 2 Timothy 4.8 says we should love His appearing. Do you make that clear? Or are you just blending in? Are you you're just one of the boys? Are you just one of the crowd? Or are you like Joseph of Arimathea who was called a secret disciple? Are you going through life as a member of the spiritual CIA trying to keep it from everybody else? Or are you making it clear that you are seeking God's country? A spiritual sojourner makes it clear by the pattern of his life that he's seeking that heavenly country. And then fourth in the checklist is their persistence. Verse 15, And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. If Abraham and the others had spent their time thinking about Ur in Mesopotamia, what would have happened? They would have had opportunity to return. If they had sat around thinking, you know, we really had it nice back in Ur, pretty soon they would have turned around and gone back. After all, they knew the way, they had the money, they had the time, they had the strength. The Canaanites wouldn't have stopped them from going. Their friends back home would have welcomed them. And it's, same, it's the same for those of us who walk the walk of faith. We have turned away from the world. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 14 says, But may it never be that I should boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. The cross of Jesus Christ doesn't just save me of my sins and allow me to go to heaven. The cross of Jesus Christ crucifies me to the world and the world to me. I have come out of that. And I'm not to be looking back. Romans 12.2 says, do not be conformed to this world. Our focus is to be on the Lord and His promises. And if we look around at the world, we might have opportunity to return. When Abraham wanted to get a wife for his son Isaac, he could have used that as an excuse for him to go back to Mesopotamia and find one. Do you know what he did? He sent his servant. And his servant said to him, no woman is going to come unless I take Isaac with me to the land from which you came. And I love what Abraham says to him in Genesis 24, 6. He says, beware lest you take my son back there. In other words, over my dead body is he going back to Mesopotamia. You know, Jacob fled back to the old country for 20 years to escape the murderous intentions of his brother Esau but he never viewed it as his homeland. In fact, in Genesis 30.25, he said to his father-in-law Laban, send me away that I may go to my own place and to my own 
country. Where's your homeland? Is it in this world or is it in heaven? You know, a lot of Christians spend a lot of time looking back at the world. We say, I'm a Christian and I'm separate from the world. Whoa, what are they doing now? And we're looking back, and when we're looking back, what eventually happens? We find opportunity to return. You know, for some of us, we may need to cut some close friendships with the world. Because if your closest friends are part of the world, then you're being drawn back. You're getting opportunity to return. It's not very hard to break friendships like that. You just let people know that you're seeking a heavenly country and they'll break friendship with you. We need to evaluate who we're associating with and what our purpose is in doing so. You know, we need to be like Peter when Jesus said, will you go away also? Peter spoke up and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? Where are we going to go? There's nothing out there that interests us. People of faith, sojourners, don't spend their time looking back. What do they do? Well, that's number five on the checklist. Their passion. Look at verse 16. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Sojourners don't look back to the country they left and they don't dig deep roots in the country they're in. They desire another country. And I want you to notice some things about that country. I've jotted down four. Number one, verse 16 says it's a heavenly one. It's a heavenly one. It's not here and it's not now. It's there and it's then. See, that's one of those promises that's afar off. That's one of those promises that we don't get in this time in this world. That's one of those promises we're going to get in the future. It's a heavenly country. Secondly, verse 16 says it's better. You see that word? The Bible doesn't answer all of our questions about heaven, but it lets us know that it's far better. This world has been affected by the curse of sin, but in heaven, Revelation 21.4 says, there will be no death, no sorrow, no crying, no pain. That's pretty good. In fact, I was thinking about all the jobs that we won't need in heaven. There will be no doctors, no nurses, no police, no armed forces, no locksmiths, no bug sprayers, no crop dusters, no morticians. We won't need those things in heaven because of the kind of place it is. Heaven will be beautiful beyond our imagination. The Bible says it's got golden streets, gates of pearl, walls made out of precious stone, and a clear river of life flowing through it. Reminds me of the joke of the fellow who got to heaven and he wanted to bring his bag of gold in. And uh, he kept insisting that he wanted to, to, to bring his bag of gold into heaven. And so finally they said, well, fine, bring your gold in. And he walked in with his gold. And uh, those at the gate turned around and said, why would a guy want to bring asphalt into heaven? You know, what we value here is no comparison 
to what heaven is like and the priorities there. But you know, the best part of heaven is not the streets of gold and not the gates of pearl. It's that Revelation 21.3 says God Himself will dwell among His people. In fact, Revelation 21.23 says there will be no need of the sun or of the moon for the glory of God will illumine it and its lamp is the Lamb. Wow. Won't need the sun and moon because Jesus will shine and God's glory will shine to illumine that place. And then thirdly, I want you to notice it's a city. Verse 14 calls it a country, but that's the Greek word patris, which means fatherland. The emphasis is not on the fact that it's a place of habitation that's out in the country. It's that it is a fatherland. It is a homeland. And when we get to the end of verse 16, he makes it more specific because there he calls it a city. In verse 10, he says Abraham was looking for the city. Now, most of us think of heaven as a place where we're going to have mansions on large estates in a rural setting. And that largely comes from a mistranslation of John 14, too, where the King James says, in my father's house are many what? Are many mansions. That's not a good translation. You don't have mansions in a house anyway. But, but the translation there is not mansions. The translation is rooms or dwelling places. And so, so we need to put that idea out of our mind. I think when we think about heaven, we think, you know, I'm going to have a big mansion on a private estate and I'm going to have signs around my property that say, keep out. No trespassing. But the Bible tells me that when we get to heaven, it's going to be a city. Now, that's interesting because some of us don't like cities. When we think of cities, we think of Dirty, polluted, run-down, graffiti, crime, crowds of rude, impatient people. You say, well, why is heaven going to be a city? Why isn't heaven going to be a rural setting? And I think the simple answer for me is that one of the major focuses of heaven is going to be fellowship with God and fellowship with with each other. God's not going to have us spread out around the universe in our own little private place where nobody meets us. We're going to be in a city, but it's going to be a different city. A city centered around Jesus Christ well, where we will enjoy that intimate, sweet fellowship that will only be experienced in heaven. And nobody's going to be in a hurry there because it's an eternal city. There won't even be any horns on the cars. And then fourthly, it's for us. Verse 16 says, it's a city for prepared for them. Verse 14 says, it's a country of their own. In fact, that word prepared in verse 16 is the same word Jesus used in John 14 too when He said, I go to prepare a place for you. You see, this is a custom-built place. It's not a spec home. They didn't just create it and say, I hope, I hope it'll fit their needs. It's built especially and perfectly 
to meet the needs of each one of us. And this passage tells us it should be our passion. Sojourners seek God's country. Sojourners desire this heavenly city. You know, when we built our first house, we lived in an apartment. And we didn't settle into our apartment and go, you know, this is great in this apartment. I think we'll just stay here forever. You know what we'd do in our spare time? We would go out, before the house was even started, we'd go out to the land and we'd walk around and dream about what it was going to be like. And when they started to build the house, we would go out there, it'd be all dusty, and we, we would sit down on the plywood floors and eat Wibbs barbecue and dream about what it was going to be like to live there. Well, you see, this world is an apartment. This world is a tent. We're just renting here. Our home is in heaven where Jesus is preparing a place for us. And that should be our passion. And then sixthly, sixthly, <clears throat> you try saying it, sixthly, is their praise at the end of verse 16. It says, Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. That's pretty high praise. God is not ashamed to be called their God. God didn't blush when His name was associated with them. Now what's the opposite of being ashamed? Being proud. Being pleased. Is God proud to be called your God? Is God pleased to be called the God of Dan Green? Or does He blush when he hears that? Is he ashamed when he hears that? You know, the Bible doesn't hide the faults of the, of the patriarchs. And yet when God appeared to Moses in the burning bush, he said, I am the God of Abraham, and I am the God of Isaac, and I am the God of Jacob. He wasn't ashamed to be called their God. Why not? Because he prepared a city for them, and they desired it. Now imagine that you were God and you prepared a heavenly city for me to live in. And you told me all about it and yet I spend all my time living as if this was the only place I ever planned to be. How would you feel? Well, God has done that. Jesus said in John 14.3, I go to prepare a place for you. And Revelation 21 tells us all about it in detail. Do you want to know that God is proud to be called your God? Do you want to know that God is pleased to be called your God? What do you have to do? Some heroic exploit? No. All you have to do is see His promises, be persuaded of them, Welcome them, confess that you're a stranger here, and make it clear that you are desiring the city that God has prepared for you. 
And if that's not where you find yourself at today, then let's confess that to the Lord and get our hearts where they need to be. I'm going to ask the praise team to come back and we're going to close our service.